Hi, this is James Barris. I hope you find this talk supports you in your practice. If you'd like to support my teaching, you can use the donate button underneath my picture on Dharma Seed to do that. Your support is greatly appreciated. I want to talk tonight on an aspect of the Buddhist teaching on right effort that sometimes doesn't get as much airplay as other aspects. When you hear the words right effort, just notice what your what goes on inside. Is there a contraction? Is there a delight? <laughs> right effort. What does the judging mind go? Uh oh, I don't know. We'll see how good I did or not. Well, the technical definition of right effort in, uh, in the teachings has four components. One is um, guarding against unwholesome states that have not yet arisen. We've talked a bit about that. Sally gave a, a good um, description of that in one of her talks. A second, abandoning unwholesome states that have arisen. And we, somebody brought that up in the, the questions uh, yesterday, I think it was. <clears throat> and I just want to say that abandoning doesn't mean dropping like a hot potato. It means using skillful means so that the, um, the clutch of that unwholesome state in its own, its own way uh, dissolves because you're not fueling it. There's many ways to abandon unwholesome states, but that one particularly, it's, it's useful to not let those words trip you up, abandoning. The other two components of right effort have to do with wholesomeness. One is developing wholesome states that have not yet arisen. For instance, when we do loving-kindness practice, uh, that is the development, the conscious programming, developing of that open-hearted quality. And then the, the fourth is maintaining and increasing wholesome states that have arisen. That's what I want to talk about tonight. So, not as bad as maybe you feared. How, what does that mean, to maintain and increase wholesome states when they've come. It's an important thing to, uh, to keep in mind that this is not only about dealing with difficulties, this mindfulness practice. You know, Howie gave such a, a lovely talk yesterday that pointed to directly experiencing that pure awareness that nature of mind beyond the the confusion and the creation of of self. But in a very practical and down-to-earth way, wholesome states do visit us from time to time as you're doing this. And sometimes there can be the the idea, as somebody said in an interview um, just today, you know, it felt really good, but I thought, I better not get attached. And he was very, was feeling really um, understandably and justifiably pleased at the, the, the concern not to glom on and, uh, and create more suffering by holding on to that which is changing. But that's only part of the picture, because in your concern not to get attached to something that is, has been sweet and inspiring, in that movement, I better not get attached. Not only do you disconnect from it, not only are you not getting attached to it, but the wholesome state is diminished by your concern. And the Buddha said, this is, it's a useful thing to feel the wholesome. In fact, in one discourse, it's one of my my favorite teachings of the Buddha, he says, 
that gladness connected with the wholesome I call an equipment of mind. And he goes on to say, it's an equipment to overcome ill will and hostility. So it's part of your toolkit, you know, an equipment. It's part of the, it's a good equipment to have. The gladness that can come when you experience wholesomeness. In the, uh, in the Pali, the word pamoja is translated as gladness. Now, this can sometimes, as I say, be lost in, the, um, in some understandings or misunderstandings that, that we have of Buddhist practice. And I remember, actually, at, when I first started practicing, I had this big concern um, that first summer that I was introduced to, to the practice um, that I would stop enjoying life, if I really did this well, you know, then it would just be kind of like flat, you know. Equanimity is is such a a valued uh, mind state and attitude. I thought, well, okay, if I'm really equanimous, do I stop feeling and delighting? And I actually uh, had this interaction with Joseph that, that really allayed my fears. I was Meditating in that, that first summer, and I had my um, my New York Knicks shirt. I was a a big New York Knicks fan. This is in the uh, in their glory days many years ago. If you might, for basketball fans, Walt Frazier, Willis Reed, that area, that time frame, and I was a season ticket holder in Madison Square Garden, right? And some of my peak experience in in my life happened in Madison Square Garden. <laughs> Fortunately, they were, these were good days. Um, and I, as I was meditating, I remembered that I had on my Nick shirt, and I had this awful image that uh, made me go up to Joseph at the end of the, the sitting, and I explained to him, I said, listen, I'm, you know, I'm a season ticket holder. <laughs> And I, great, I get great delight and joy in, um, in going to, to watch basketball. Am I going to go to Madison Square Garden and say, nice shot, Frazier. Yeah. <laughs> Good pick, Havlicek. Because you know? I wasn't ready to go for that. You know? he, he said, don't worry. You'll still feel... Feel your joys and sorrows. Um, probably thinking of himself, if only you know, if only that would go, you know. But it didn't. No, he wouldn't think that to himself. Joseph likes to have a good time as much as anybody I know. And I still can get very intense about things. I have a, I just my nature. It's not good or bad, but my nature is I, I have a, a kind of passionate. Um, Personality, and I can get very intense about things. <clears throat> so my friends tell me sometimes, uh, over a little over intense. But but um, even having that reassurance, I still could get the message subtly, or hear the message, or twist it in my mind subtly. That um, you know, you better not have too good a time. And I uh, I went to, um, no, I'll tell that later. So I, uh, I looked, I've been looking at the, the teachings and seeing where can this misunderstanding take place. And I wanted to share with you some, some teachings that can, uh, can point to where confusion can happen if it's, there, if it's not understood. There are uh, two qualities that are um, very valued and um, uh, helpful in the teachings that there can be a misunderstanding about. One is samvega, the word samvega, S-A-M-V-E-G-A, samvega, which the translation in um, 
Access to Insight, the website, uh, a fabulous website of of um, the um, real resources of the teachings, the Pali Canon, and uh, lots of wonderful uh, articles. The definition of Samvega is the oppressive sense of shock, dismay, and alienation that comes with realizing the futility and meaninglessness of life as it is normally lived, a chastening sense of one's own complacency and foolishness in having let oneself live so blindly, and an anxious sense of urgency in trying to find a way out of the meaningless cycle. How does that grab you? This is a very wholesome quality, but it can easily be misunderstood, as I did in certain points in my practice when I understood it to mean the futility and meaninglessness of life and how foolish we are to live our lives and think that there is happiness that we can experience here. That's a real mis- a distortion of what Samvega is talking about. Because the operative piece, the operative expression is realizing the futility and meaninglessness of life as it is normally lived. And as it is normally lived means that as we see for ourselves that lasting happiness will not be found in changing experience, then it gives us a deep motivation to see where deeper happiness lies. But it does not mean that all of life is meaningless and not to be enjoyed. Because that would contradict the Buddha talking about the gladness connected with wholesome states that we can experience in life. There can be some very um, deep, profound understandings that can shake us as we're practicing and thinking, oh my goodness, I didn't see through this game. All my life, I was living in a dream. And when you wake up and see nothing is quite going to do it, it can rock you. And it can give you, as I say, a strong urge to keep on to see where the the, the deepest happiness lies. But if you get into that confusion, uh uh-uh, life is no good, I've got to get off the wheel as fast as I can, then I think you can... Um, can run into some difficulties. I did myself for a period in practice for some time. There's a, another word that I think it's useful to understand that perhaps might be new to uh, some of you. The word is nibida, N-I-B-B-I-D-A, nibida, which is sometimes translated thus, okay? One should abide in the utter disgust for the aggregates. That's one translation of nibida. Another translation, when practicing in accordance with the Dhamma, one should dwell engrossed in revulsion toward the aggregates. That's another translation. Doesn't sound very uplifting, does it? But a deeper and more um, contemporary and insightful translation of the word nibida is disenchantment. A disenchantment from the aggregates from this belief in who we are, this sense of self. And if you 
look at the word disenchantment, it means breaking the spell, not being under the enchantment of the false idea of who we think we are. And when we break the spell, then we can, as I mentioned in a a previous talk, see what the Buddhas and enlightened beings see, that this form, this form, feeling, perception, mental formation, consciousness, put together this mind-body process, it's not bad, it's not good, it just is. And when you see through that enchantment, then you see the possibility that happiness lies in our understanding that we've been grasping on to something that's simply not what we thought it was. And in that, there can be a tremendous freedom and release. But if you think that the world is bad and I'm ugly and something to be... Don't think that I'm ugly, please. I'm, that there's revulsion and that, you, that there's something to turn away from, then you move into aversion. And the Buddha's path is the middle way. Not grasping, not pushing away, but just seeing clearly. And the interesting thing, as perhaps you've seen, as you see more and more clearly, there are wholesome states of mind that start to, by themselves, be experienced. People come in with gratitude, with an openness, with loving kindness. So just in the seeing clearly, all of these beautiful states that are our potential can be experienced and are aids to practice. I remember going to uh, with uh, going to India and being with this teacher that Howie and I both studied with Punjaji, H.W.L. Punja, or known as Papaji as well. And he just radiated love and wisdom and deep peace. And uh, he's, uh, he's an Advaita teacher, not a, a Buddhist per se, although he loved the Buddha. But uh, I at some point asked him, you know, I want to a- ask you something, uh, uh, Punjaji. When you talk about emptiness, it's so different than when uh, I hear Dharma talks by Buddhist teachers about emptiness. Sometimes when, you know, the word emptiness is used a lot and when, uh, uh, when it's talked about in, in Dharma circles, it's very essency, it's very deep, it's very profound, but it often has a kind of serious tone. When you talk about emptiness, and he would use the word a lot, and when you talk about emptiness, you're so happy. Why are you so happy? You know, what gives you this light and there's laughter and there's all of these things that that come out. You know, why is your emptiness much happier than (laughs) Buddhist emptinesses? What, What gives here? It's the same emptiness. And he said, there can be a mistake when emptiness through deep meditation, and it's a very profound experience, when through stillness and meditation, one thinks that that is the way to experience, and the only way to experience emptiness, through that stillness, through that um, silence. And then, as he said it, anything other than that seems to take us away from emptiness. And so the world of appearances can sometimes seem to be not as profound or refined as the emptiness that we can experience in deep meditation. He said, my emptiness, nothing is rejected. There is love, 
there is sorrow, there is joy, there is confusion. Everything is part of my emptiness. My emptiness rejects nothing. And he laughed and he laughed and he laughed. (laughs) I kind of liked that. And I realized that it was, again, my misunderstanding that would lead me to think that, oh, this is about getting away from life. So I just want to save you a little bit of hassle because I spent some time there in my own practice for, for a while and realized that the gladness connected with the wholesome is a great support to practice. I want to share with you a passage that I've, I've read here before, one of my favorite passages from Ajahn Sumedho the points to this dilemma. He says, sometimes in Theravada Buddhism, one gets the impression that you shouldn't enjoy beauty. If you see a beautiful flower, you should contemplate its decay. (laughs) Or if you see a beautiful woman, you should contemplate her as a rotting corpse. (laughs) This has a certain value on one level, but it's not a fixed position to take. It's not that we should feel compelled to reject beauty and dwell on its impermanence and on how it changes to being not so beautiful and then downright repulsive. That is a good reflection on anicca, dukkha, and anatta, but it can leave the impression that beauty is only to be reflected on in terms of these three characteristics rather than in terms of the experience of beauty. This is the joy of mudita, being able to appreciate the beauty in the things around us. People who can't see the beauty of the good or the true are really bitter and mean. They live in an ugly realm where there's no rejoicing in beauty and goodness and truth. Once you have true insight, then you find you enjoy and delight in the beauty and the goodness of things. Truth, beauty, and goodness delight us. In them we find joy. That is mudita. In recent, uh, recent times, I've been something of a student of, of joy and happiness because it was this confusion that, um, that uh, took me away from, from understanding for some time. And and so in, in recent years, I've, I've just seen the possibility of consciously cultivating joy. And um, I've run um, a couple of times uh, some joy groups, a joy course, a six-month course in joy. And I did it really for my own, for my own well-being at first and just to kind of see what the possibilities were. But it's, uh, it's been really fabulous to do because what I suspected is so that it can be cultivated like anything, like loving kindness, like generosity, like mindfulness. And joy is in lots of different lists in the Buddhist teachings. It's in the four Brahma Viharas. It's one of the buildings, the Mudita building. It's in the seven factors of enlightenment. It's talked a lot about in jhana states that the Buddha said, this is good to experience joy. Often it's connected with concentration, but it can also be developed outside. The Buddha, in a great um, uh, succinct teaching, says, whatever the practitioner thinks, frequently thinks and ponders upon, that will become the inclination of their mind. Whatever one frequently thinks and ponders upon, that will become the inclination of their mind. And so it occurred to me, what happens if you have supportive practices to incline the mind towards joy and happiness? So I do these groups, and uh, it worked. I'll just read one 
But one comment from someone who is a very aversive, by his own admission, a very aversive type. And he said, "Uh, I've had an experience that was pretty illuminating. As I was driving in the city, there was traffic. I tend to get really frustrated and contracted when there's traffic. My mind starts thinking about a lot of things in our society and I get on a roll. As I stop, and I stopped and I said to myself, well, wait a minute, is there any joy here? And I realized that I could just switch the channels. I looked out and I saw the water. And I looked up and it was a clear day. I opened my sunroof and I said to myself, you know, it's not so bad. And I realized, I noticed there was a switch that I'm starting to nurture that I didn't realize was there before. A lot of new brain research and happiness research is showing that not only are these states enjoyable and can be cultivated, but they actually change the brain chemistry and um, uh, composition that neural fibers start to grow. And they've measured, they've wired up um, Tibetan monks and practitioners and would have them meditate and just see the difference in their brain from, from somebody who's not a practitioner. And then they'd also look at people over time who've been meditating. And there's more fibers growing that increase uh, in one, uh, one experiment. It's called neuroplasticity, if you're not familiar with it. Maybe a lot, a lot of people are. But this, this plasticity of the human brain where there's messages that are sent to places that usually get very ex- uh, excited under stress and with fear that can have more communication to put that that uh, place in the brain at ease and at rest. Or there's a greater enhancement of immune system and well-being. In one, I was just reading actually in this, this Time magazine that came out a couple of months ago, or last month, The Science of Happiness, 65 pages on it, and there's a lot on meditation. And they did a, a, a research uh, study. This whole thing is filled with research studies. They took a 1,000 adults... And they had the, they divided them up into three groups. They had one group just journal their moods for the day, from one to six, and just get, do a diary and see how um, what their day was like. Second group, they had them do the same thing and also list all the um, all the all the hassles that they had for that day, all the things that went wrong for that day. And the third group. They did the same thing, noticed their moods, and um, journal all the things that they were grateful for in that day. And they tracked them over time. And they saw that the difference not only in well-being and, uh, and happiness, but in immune system, in health, in um, amount of exercise, all of these things, and it was a completely random sample at the beginning, uh, were dramatically different between the grateful group particularly and the ones who were the hassled group. So you don't get any extra points for noticing how bad things are in your life. In fact, in in this one one book, uh, which is called Authentic Happiness by Martin Seligman. He's the the father of positive psychology. He says, again, pessimists are up to eight times more likely to become depressed when bad events happen. And 10-year-old children, teaching 10-year-old children the skills of optimistic thinking and action cuts their rate of depression in half when they go through puberty. So, and this is all on the relative level, but you can actually determine your well-being with practice. I just want to share with you one story about how the father of positive psychology got to become that and decide to focus on that. Because he studied abnormal psychology and um, 
and mental illness for about uh, 30 years before he got into, uh, or 20 years before he got into positive psychology. And this was how it happened. Um, I got a glimpse of what this was all about while weeding in my garden with my five-year-old daughter, Nikki. I have to confess that even though I've written a book and many articles about children, I'm actually not very good with them. I'm goal-oriented and time-urgent, and when I'm weeding in the garden, I'm weeding. Nikki, however, was throwing weeds into the air and dancing and singing. Since she was distracting me, I yelled at her, and she walked away. Within a few minutes, she was back, saying, Daddy, I want to talk with you. (laughs) Yes, Nikki? Daddy, do you remember before my fifth birthday? From when I was three until when I was five, I was a whiner. I whined every day. On my fifth birthday, I decided I wasn't going to whine anymore. That was the hardest thing I've ever done. And if I can stop whining, you can stop being such a grouch. (laughs) This was an epiphany for me. In terms of my own life, Nikki hit the nail right on the head. I was a grouch. I had spent 50 years enduring mostly wet weather in my soul and the last 10 years as a walking nimbus cloud in a household radiant with sunshine. Any good fortune I had was probably not due to being grumpy, but in spite of it. In that moment, I resolved to change. And then came positive psychology as a result. It is possible to change. You don't have to feel stuck where you are. And not only is it possible to incline the mind towards well-being, it is the best gift you can give for your own practice and also for everybody around you. Now, this is not simply just feel-good pop psychology that I want to communicate with you. And I want to make the, underscore the point that there's a reason that the Buddha started his, his teachings with the fact that there's suffering in life. That the more you can understand and embrace suffering, not be afraid of it, not be confused by it, not take it personally, the more you can understand suffering and the causes of suffering and the less frightened you are by it, then the greater the possibility of happiness. When he was asked, he would say, I teach about suffering and the end of suffering. And in fact, coming to terms with our suffering is one of these pathways to joy that I discovered. You can't bypass it. And when I, by the way, when I say the word joy, I want to... uh, Uh, clarify that, again, don't let words trip you out because the word joy might be really far-reaching for some people. And so other words like well-being, I find, is a a very useful one. Or contentment or ease, you know, like in the metaphrase, may I have ease of well-being. This is what we're talking about. And the more that you can open up to that well-being, the more you're able to hold the dukkha when it comes. Because otherwise, it gets too overwhelming and there's no space to see clearly. But directly experiencing the suffering when it comes is also a pathway to joy. And in one list, as um, perhaps some of you are familiar with, there's this one list called Transcendental Dependent Arising that starts out with suffering being a causative factor for faith. 
that suffering can crack us open to the point where we just say, I give up. I don't, I can't control it anymore. This is too much for me. And you open up to a wider reality, particularly if you have teachings that can hold an understanding of suffering, like Buddha Dharma. But in that moment of giving up, when you say, I give up, it's like, I surrender. And the ego that's trying to hold on desperately to keep things together surrenders and often, as probably many people here can attest, experiencing deep pain and suffering can crack us open to see a deeper meaning in life. And so in this list, suffering can become a causative factor for faith. And faith can be a causative factor for gladness. Gladness becomes a causative factor for joy. And onward, joy becomes a a factor for happiness, concentration, and up to liberation. So this is not just about feeling good and la-di-da, and yes, let's just focus on the good who wants to see the bad. Uh, That's just, just denial. But in your opening up to all the difficulties, to have that perspective that opening the heart to the good creates space to hold the other. As it's often said, this world is comprised of the 10,000 joys and the 10,000 sorrows. And if we only focus on the 10,000 sorrows, we're going to be very somber and um, contracted. And if we only focus on the 10,000 joys, we're going to be missing out how things really are, and the Duke is going to come and bite us anyway. But if we see the sorrows and held in a, in a space of joy, they can both be integrated. <clears throat> so, how to condense a six-month course into a few minutes. just want to share with you a few things that I find are really helpful in cultivating this feeling of well-being and openness, open-heartedness. The primary one, just as in the Buddha's teaching on right effort, that is maintaining and increasing wholesome states when they've arisen, what does that mean? It means noticing when there's a good feeling here, noticing the wholesomeness of it, not just thinking, oh, well, I'm feeling good now, it's going to change, or, oh, well, that must have been a fluke, I've somehow opened up into into joy, or let me just feel feel the, uh, hear the sound or feel the sensation. If you're feeling joyful, or you're feeling well-being, or you're feeling peaceful, or calm, or love, or compassion, or generosity. Let that be the subject of your practice. Get to know it really well. Not with grasping, not saying, oh God, I hope it doesn't leave, but just really feeling the landscape in your body, in your heart, because when your body can feel it, then it becomes more and more available to you. In fact, before we go on, just like you to close your eyes for a moment and think of a time in these days if there's been any moment that has been uh, a wholesome moment that's felt pretty good. And you said, wow. Even if it was just getting under the covers at night and getting into your bed, that counts too. But if you've been touched by some understanding where your heart's been open, just remember where you were. Just remember that moment when the heart was touched. 
remember just the moment where you said, ah. Let your awareness feel with real interest how that feels in your body. You can open your eyes if you'd like. Could you feel it? How many people remembered and could feel? Just wondering. Okay. How did it feel when you just did it now? Feel pretty good, didn't it? Huh? It's there. And you might have thought, oh, well, that'll never come again. It just did, didn't it? Now, we don't have to dwell on it. Oh, yeah, I've got to go back there and I've got to recreate it. But when you remember it, it's beautiful. Let yourself be inspired by it. And particularly when it comes all on its own, pay real attention to it. This is the best way to maintain and increase wholesome states when they've arisen. The Buddha has one discourse where he he talks. It's the same discourse that he says, gladness connected with the wholesome. He has one example and he says... um, Um, different equipments of mind, and he's talking about generosity. And he says, as you're in the middle of a generous act, if it's just happening spontaneously, he says, one should say thus, thinking, I'm generous, right in the middle of the act. Thinking I'm generous, he says, one gains inspiration in the meaning. One delights in the heart, one gains inspiration in the Dharma. He says, that's a really good thing to do, right in the middle of it. Now, he's not saying to go and pat yourself and say, hey, I'm a pretty generous guy, aren't I? That is the conceit of I am, one more time, where you've taken, you've identified with that wholesome state. But he says, no, 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 you don't have to do that. Just feel how good it feels coming through you. Just delight in it. You can't take ownership of it. You don't need to take ownership of it. Just feel it as it's coming through on the way out. This is a useful thing to do. Maintain and increase wholesome states when they're here by paying real close attention to them. It's kind of tuning into the good, tuning into what is good. As I was saying last night in that, uh, the loving kindness, remember I I mentioned Maharaji saying, uh, the best form to worship God is every form. Well, another variation of that, Maharaji Ninkarali Baba would say, keep looking for the good, keep tuning into the good, because that's what you'll find. Hmm. I'll just go on. So this is one way. Along with that, as you start to tune into the wholesome when it arises, there's a sense of appreciation. And you know, with your own practice, it doesn't have to be sweet and delicious to have a sense of appreciation. We can appreciate how we, the courage we have when we open up to our suffering. We can appreciate the, um, the sincerity that we bring to our practice when things are tough. It's not only about the sweet stuff. We can appreciate as you walk around here so much, you see the buds starting to, uh, to appear on, on the branches or the lizards moving about. And that sense of awe and wonder is a tremendous feeling that naturally comes as we open ourselves up and are so tuned in and sensitive to reality. Let yourself appreciate that. Let yourself feel that sense of wonder, that that place that says, wow, look at that. Albert Einstein has this quote on that. He says, the most beautiful and profound emotion we can experience is the sensation of the mystical. It is the sower of all true science. 
one to whom this emotion is a stranger who can no longer wonder and stand wrapped in awe is as good as dead. To know that what is impenetrable to us really exists, manifesting itself as the highest wisdom and the most radiant beauty, which our dull faculties can, only, can comprehend only in their primitive forms, this knowledge, this feeling, is at the center of true religion. Like how we sang last night, Emaho. Amazing. How amazing. You can let yourself be amazed by how little we can comprehend, as well as stand with wonder and awe at the lizards as they go by, or this web of life that we're all a part of. That feeling of wonder and awe and appreciation leads very naturally to another experience that is very common as we sit here on retreat, and that is gratitude. You know, it's, it's amazing you know, just how, how that happens when the mind isn't confused and we feel whole and we feel, feel full. It's like in that wholeness, in that sense of completion, our hearts just kind of spill over and it feels so full. How could, how could life give me so much? Especially when we're practicing here. My goodness, what incredible karma we have. Amazing. Emaho. Amazing. That we can all be here together. That we have good circumstances in our life. That we can support each other. That we have the inclination and the interest to really wake up and discover amazing gratitude that naturally spills out. But you don't have to be here on retreat to experience that gratitude, as those people in that study found out. My wife, uh, Jane, has a gratitude practice that she's been doing for a number of years. And every night, you might take this on if you if you're into it, every night she emails, um, first it was one friend, now it's two, as she, uh, as another friend heard about it. They email each other what they're grateful for that day. And actually, Sylvia, when she heard about Jane doing it, uh, picked it up, and she and, and Carol Wilson have a gratitude practice that they email uh, each night. And that practice has made such a difference because it inclines the mind towards seeing what's good, along with opening to what's difficult. Thich Nhat Hanh has a, a teaching. He says, um, instead of seeing what's wrong, have a practice of seeing what's not wrong. Okay. Oh, I had a toothache last week. I have no toothache today. Oh, no toothache. How wonderful. And you might take this as something that you do here in your, your sitting. At the end of the, the day, I've mentioned that as, as something that you might experience, experiment with. You know, just reflecting on what you're grateful for in the day. Even with the hard stuff. The gratitude and appreciation, the abundance of that also spills over into a generous heart. And generosity, as, as we know, is a source of great wholesome karma. The three roots of wholesome karma are non-greed or generosity, non-hatred, non-aversion or kindness, non-delusion or clarity. And every moment that you're mindful, you are developing a spirit of generosity. You are letting go, you are allowing for the pleasant to pass on itself. And that starts to translate into a spirit of generosity, a spirit of dana, where we are sharing our blessings with life. 
It's like we complete the circuit with life. We've been given so much. And in that spirit of generosity and gratitude, we see it's just moving through us. And it feels so good. It's the first paramita, the very first, even before meditation or morality. There are a number of other aspects of developing wholesome states and uh, being present for them when they arise. And uh, I'll just name them briefly here. Uh, maybe I'll, we can talk some more uh, later on. There's the, the joy of letting go, the joy of restraint, the joy of not acting on impulses that will cause suffering what the Buddha called the bliss of blamelessness. He talked about it for householders. He said there are most every householder, not most every, I shouldn't say that, it's possible for householders to experience um, four kinds of, of happiness besides those of meditative happiness. One is the happiness that comes from being free of debt. That's, it's a good feeling to have. If we're fortunate, if circumstances are good for us, the happiness that comes from being able to take care of, of those who we care about. If we're even more fortunate, there can be the happiness that comes from being able to be generous with others who we don't even know. And then the fourth happiness is what he called this bliss of blamelessness, where we act with integrity, we act aligned with our values. And he said, compared to the bliss of blamelessness, those first three aren't one-sixteenth as potent a source of happiness. I don't know how he came up with that equation, but that's what it says, right, in the, in the suttas. Not one-sixteenth as the bliss of blamelessness. So when we're really acting with integrity, when we're acting with restraint from doing something that's harmful, to let ourselves feel that, how good that feels that we've made that choice. There's the joy of letting go of living simply, of simplifying the joy of renunciation, which is not something that we do as a, as a sacrifice, but in lightening the baggage. And, and here we're in a, in a circumstance where there's not a whole lot of extra external baggage, right? And basically, there's meal times you know, and Dharma talks that we could we can look forward to, right? No TV, no major conversations except for interviews, no entertainment, you know. Do you miss it? Not really. You know, when I'm on retreat, it, it's like, oh, God, it's so great that it's not complicated. How wonderful it is to be this simple. This is a great source of happiness. But we have to be reminded when we go out in the world because it's so easy to get swept up. Oh, that would be good and that would be good. And, and then we go on the, the internet and uh, one link goes to another and oh yeah, and you find yourself an hour later saying, God, how did I get hooked in that? Well, the joy of letting go, of simplifying, this is a tremendous source of happiness. And we have it right here. There's the joy of connection, the joy of community, of sangha that we can experience here and we can experience in in our life. The joy of good friends. There's the taking delight in the happiness of others, mudita. And we'll go through that at some point in in the Brahma Vihara practice. And, of course, there is, ultimately, the joy of freedom. 
And the Buddha said, if you go for the highest happiness, all the other ones will follow. Isn't that cool? You go for the highest and you, your life becomes lived with integrity. You start to be present for all the, the goodness in life. Your, uh, your friends start to appreciate being around you or you get new friends. There's, there's seeing all the, all the mystery and wonder and awe. All of that comes as we aim for the highest happiness, as we aim for that sure heart's release. So what we're doing is the cultivation of this joyful heart. I see the Buddhist path as a path leading to joy. And the Buddha said, go for it. Go for the highest and, and just trust everything else will come in its own time, in its own way. And when you feel that purity of heart, when you feel that place inside, whether or not it's full liberation or just a place of authenticity, just a place where you're so connected with the truth, where there's no games, where there's no, nothing to impress, where there's just being real and just being sincere. That is a moment of freedom as well. And that conditions the heart for the highest moment of freedom, of really a transformative understanding. So aim for the highest and know that all the other ones along the way support that development. When you're feeling well-being, when you're feeling ease and contentment, when there's a spontaneous arising of compassion, be present for it. Open up to the mystery of of life around you. Feel the support of like-minded friendship. Reflect on the gratitude for your good karma and how much you, this opportunity to do what you can to express it well, to realize your full potential, because that expression becomes your gift to everybody. The bodhisattva, the joy of being a bodhisattva, of doing your practice for the benefit of all beings. This is what we're cultivating here, and this is what we're leading to, the ultimate joy, the freedom of heart. So I'll, I'll close with this passage from Shantideva. <clears throat> As a blind person feels when they find a pearl in a dustbin, so am I amazed by the miracle of awakening rising in my consciousness. It is the nectar of immortality that delivers us from death, the treasure that lifts us above poverty into the wealth of giving to life, the tree that gives shade to us when we roam about scorched by life, the bridge that takes us across the stormy river of life, the cool moon of compassion that calms our mind when it is agitated, the sun that dispels darkness, the butter made from from the milk of kindness by churning it with the Dharma. It is a feast of joy to which all are invited. We'll sit for a moment.
This talk was given by James Barras at Spirit Rock Meditation Center on February 12, 2005. It is an offering of the Dharma Seed. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.